the attack on Germanville would lead to an incredible fallout. One of Germanville's men had escaped the ambush and returned to Fort Duquesne within days. There, the French soldier had reported that the ensign, Germanville, had been ambushed by a detachment of Virginia militia under the command of George Washington, along with a group of Iroquois warriors led by the half-king. He told French officers that Jumonville and nine other Canadians had been killed and scalped. Jumonville's half-brother, Louis Colon de Vier, had been among the officers listening to the report. To make matters worse, the French commander of Fort Duquesne, Claude-Pierre de Contecure, had also received word from his Iroquois allies that Washington had left the scalp corpses unburied and as prey to wolves and crows. Contecure would not allow an act of war like this to go without retaliation. In the last episode, we discussed the Ohio Company, the British and French encroachment within the Ohio River Valley, and the ambition of a young George Washington. We also talked about the attack on Ensign Germanville and his men. In today's episode, we are going to talk about the fallout from the Germanville affair. We are going to discuss the disaster at Fort Necessity and the political ramifications of both the colonists the British Parliament, and France. For this episode, my research comes from mainly three books. Braddock's Defeat by David L. Preston, The French and Indian War, Deciding the Fate of North America by Walter R. Bornman, and Benjamin Franklin, the classic by Walter Isaacson. All of these books are linked down below. Um, they are not affiliate links. You can order them from the website or you can get them on Amazon. Um, but I did want to let you guys know where my research is coming from. And it mainly comes from these three books. For any other citations, notes, you can visit my website at www.historicalusa. Now, if you are watching this on YouTube, we are at 16,000 subscribers, and I would absolutely love to get to 20,000 by the end of the year. So if you could give this video a thumbs up, subscribe, and share with a friend, that would help the channel so much. If you are listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, please make sure you give this podcast a good review. We are almost at 10,000 downloads, and I would absolutely be thrilled to hit that 10,000 mark by the year 2024. So if you could leave a comment, share the podcast with a friend, that would help me so much. And I want to thank you guys for coming along this journey with me as we are exploring the issues, the events, and the people leading up to American independence. I am so excited to continue this journey on with you. Today's episode, we are talking about the disaster of Fort Necessity. So let's get into it. 
Upon hearing the massacre of Germainville, Contecure mustered 500 Canadians out of Fort Duquesne. Vierre, seeking to avenge his brother, was placed in command of the Canadian force. The French were accompanied by 100 natives, mostly Abnaki and Iroquois allies. Washington, though, his problems had continued to worsen. Preparing for an expected retaliation from the French, Washington had returned to the Great Meadow and constructed a pretty small stockade that he named Fort Necessity. Fort Necessity was small compared to 18th century standards. It initially was not meant as a military garrison. It was more designed as a staging area from which he could launch operations while waiting for a larger force. The wooden structure sat smack dab alone in an open field. Washington and his men began to build earthworks around the fort so that his men could take sufficient cover from the French volleys in hopes of holding out against an imminent attack. As he set upon his troops to reinforce the fort, Washington had received word that the Virginia regiment commander, Colonel John Fry, had died on May 31st, after falling from his horse. Washington also learned that Dinwiddie had appointed him as commander of the Virginia Regiment, and that reinforcements of 100 fine men of the South Carolina Independent Company, commanded by Captain James McKay, would be arriving as reinforcements. By July 3rd, 1754, Washington was commander of over 400 men at Fort Necessity. What happened to Washington's Iroquois allies? Well, after the events in the Glen, Washington clearly did not trust or listen to what Tanach Harrison and other Indian leaders had to say. The Iroquois had felt that the British had completely abandoned them and that little had been done to protect them or their people. Seeing that the French retaliation was coming to the Great Meadow, the Indians virtually abandoned Washington and left. The morning of the 3rd, Captain Vier led his command into the woods surrounding the open field where Fort Necessity sat. Washington quickly realized that he had chosen a very poor position for defense. He attempted to advance about 50 of his men into the open field, lined up for battle. As the Canadians and Native Americans began firing on Washington's men from the cover of the woods, Washington pulled his men back within the fort trenches. Around 11 a.m., a torrential rain began to pour upon the field, making Fort Necessity a muddy quagmire. The conditions were awful. Washington's men were miserable. Many of them were sick, hungry, and exhausted from days of exertion fortifying the fort. Washington and McKay's men were surrounded. They huddled closely together, making themselves very easy targets for their enemies, and the rain was soaking into their gunpowder, making their firearms almost useless. The French and native warriors inflicted a great number of casualties on Washington's men, nearly one quarter. By 8 p.m., Captain Viers called for a parley to discuss the defenders of Fort Necessity's surrender. Washington knew that the situation had been hopeless. Many of Washington's men, also seeing no hope for victory, had gotten into the alcohol supply and had become drunk. Washington was out of options and agreed to hear Vier's terms of surrender. Now you must remember, Washington 
Norma Kay spoke French, and they relied on a Dutch interpreter by the name of Van Brom. He was to translate the terms of surrender, but he missed one huge word within the terms. Now, Washington and McKay would admit unwittingly that the French were merely avenging Washington's assassination of Jumonville. Washington's admittance of assassination on paper was an act of war, and the political fallout from Washington's mistakes would be threefold. Even though Washington was defeated at Fort Necessity and the terms of his surrender were grounds for war, the colonists still saw Washington as a hero. They commended him and his men for their bravery and felt as though they had fought valiantly in the defense of Virginia's interests. Although many saw the defeat as disgraceful, the blame was not placed on Washington. The blame was mostly placed upon Washington's interpreter. One member of the House of Burgesses wrote of the Dutch interpreter, quote, that rascal Van Brom, who was himself the only unpardonable blunder that Washington made by making a confidant of him. The French did have the means to go to war. They certainly had the reason to. However, they were very wary to do so. The French commanders in Ohio were given a command by the French king, stating, quote, His Majesty Louis XV is on his side very far from allowing that an invasion be undertaken against his neighbors, and the operations should be strictly on the defensive. See, the French could not stomach another war in Europe, and they hoped to contain the tensions on the Ohio within North America. For the English, though, before Dinwiddie's report could even make it to London, a copy of the Virginia Gazette made it there first. The London papers would print an account of Washington's defeat at Fort Necessity. This defeat was not seen as brave by British ministers in Parliament. The British government had looked at the situation in the colonies as French aggression grew and felt that they were losing a handle on the situation of its colonies in the Americas. The Duke of Newcastle, upon hearing the news, stated, quote, All North America would be lost if these practices are tolerated. No war can be worse to this country than suffering such insults as these. Parliament could not understand how 400 Virginians and Carolinians under Washington could be defeated so easily. The pressure for Parliament to act within its American colonies was now at a boiling point. King George II and his British ministers began to plan perimeters for an expedition to America's Virginia frontier. For Newcastle, he felt that the French were successful because the colonies were not united. He wrote that though we may have 10 times the number of people in our colonies, they don't seem to be able to defend themselves even with the assistance of our money. Washington and many such may have courage and resolution, but they have no knowledge or experience in our profession. Quality officers and good ones must be sent to discipline the militia and to lead them. The Albany Congress. The disunity among the colonies in America actually led the Board of Trade in London to ask each colony to send a delegate to a conference in Albany, New York in June of 1754. 
While Washington was fighting the French at the Forks of the Ohio, Benjamin Franklin was crafting the Albany Plan. There were two missions for this conference. The first was to meet with the Iroquois Confederation, or the Six Nations, to reaffirm their alliance. And the second was to discuss among themselves ways to create a more unified colonial defense. But cooperation did not come easily, and nearly half of the British colonies in America declined the invitation. For those that did send delegates, many of those delegates were instructed to avoid any plans of colonial confederation. Benjamin Franklin wrote in frustration, quote, It is a very strange thing if six nations of ignorant savages or the Iroquois Confederation, would be capable of forming a scheme for such a union, and yet that a like union should be practicable for 10 or a dozen English colonies to whom it is more necessary. I love Franklin, but this is one of many statements that show Franklin had a very big ego and definitely thought of himself a little more of a cut above other individuals. Franklin had drafted a plan of union and had lobbied for a committee to be established to, quote, prepare and receive plans or schemes for the union of the colonies. There, Franklin could rally for support of his plan before the leaders of the Six Nations could arrive. However, when the Iroquois presented themselves before the Congress, the Mohawk chief, Tayanoga, who is also known as Hendrick Peters, scorned the delegates, saying that the Six Nations had been neglected, and when you neglect business, the French take advantage of it. He also added, look at the French. They are men. They are fortifying everywhere. But we are ashamed to say, you are all like women. I will not take that personally, by the way. After a week of discussion, the delegates had made several promises to the Indians. There would be more consultation on settlements and trade, certain unethical land deals would be investigated, and laws would be passed to restrict the rum trade. The natives accepted these terms and declared that their alliance with the English had been solemnly renewed. Franklin, though, put little trust in this renewal of the alliance. He wrote, quote, we brighten the chain with them, but in my opinion, no assistance is to be accepted from them if any dispute from the French, until by a complete union among ourselves, are able to support them in case they should be attacked. Franklin's plan had shades of what would come to pass in the Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union during the American Revolution and later the United States Constitution. His plan proposed that there would be a national Congress composed of representatives selected by each colony, roughly in proportion to their population and wealth. The executive would be a president general appointed by the king. At its core was a somewhat new concept that became known as federalism. A general government would handle matters such as national defense, and westward expansion. But each colony would keep its own constitution and local governing power. The plan would be accepted in Albany, and Franklin had prepared for a campaign to lobby approval for each colonial government and in Parliament in London. Just weeks before the Albany Congress would meet, 
Benjamin Franklin published an article in the Pennsylvania Gazette on May 9, 1754, commenting on the dangers of a disunited colonial front. He wrote, The confidence of the French in this undertaking seem well grounded on the present disunited states of the British colonies, and the extreme difficulty of bringing so many different governments and assemblies to agree in any speedy and effectual measures for our common defense and security. They presume that they may with impunity violate the most solemn treaties subsisting between the two crowns, kill, seize, and imprison our traitors, and confiscate their effects at pleasure as they have done for several years past. Murder and scalp our farmers with their wives and children, and take an easy possession of such parts of the British territory as they find most convenient for them. Franklin concluded warnings that the British presence in North America was at stake. The article was accompanied by the Join or Die cartoon, which depicted a snake cut into eight segments to represent the British colonies. Franklin's measure became clear as the cartoon and article began to appear in other colonial papers. Although the slogan, Join or Die, was intended for the French and Indian War, it became a strong symbol in colonial opposition to the Stamp Act and other British taxes that would lead to the Revolutionary War. It is perhaps one of the most famous pictures of colonial feelings towards the British. Now, unfortunately though, for Franklin, try as he might, his Albany plan was dead on arrival. All of the colonial assemblies rejected it, saying that it usurped too much of the individual colony's powers. In London, it was criticized for giving too much power to the colonists and encouraged a dangerous unity among the colonies. It is clear that in asking for unity among the colonies, they also feared a unity that would lead towards independence. Newcastle urged the king that an initial campaign against the French in the Ohio Valley was crucial, stating it was important to, quote, proceed as cheap and as inoffensive as we can. Last, a general war spread to Europe. Like the French, the English too also sought to keep the conflict within North America. The king had appointed Major General Edward Braddock to lead an expedition in Virginia. General Braddock was to be commander-in-chief of His Majesty's forces in America. His orders were to draw the 44th and 48th Regiment from their Irish garrison and station them in America. He was also ordered a powerful detachment of Royal Artillery to besiege the French on the frontier. By royal instruction, Braddock was to land in Virginia, where he would bring his two regiments to full strength. He was then ordered to march to Wills Creek along the Potomac River before advancing against Fort Duquesne. Now, it was not uncommon for the English to send regiments to the colonies. However, in the last few decades and the last few wars, mainly the War of Jenkins' Ear, tension between the colonial militias and British regulars had reached an incredible high. It was no surprise, though, that the decision to send a regular regiment came from Ireland. Now, this decision to send Irish regulars would reflect a fundamental distrust of colonial Americans and their military ability and worth. Essentially, it was kind of a slap in the face 
to the American colonies. Now, Governor Dinwiddie had requested that blank royal commissions be handed out to colonists for them to handle the situation on the frontier. The British, however, were very much unwilling to trust the Americans' ability to lead. They had also gotten reports that one of the reasons Washington had failed at Fort Necessity was because of a dispute between Washington and the South Carolina commander, James McKay. Because of this lack of cooperation within the colonies, Parliament made it very clear that any colonial officer, no matter the rank, would be subordinate to any regular officer. In October of 1754, Governor Dinwiddie had broken the Virginia Regiment apart. Washington had lost his regiment, and upon hearing the commissions in the British regulars were not to go to the colonists, he resigned his colonial commission. That same month, Tana Cherison had also died in the Ohio River Valley, dissolving whatever alliance Tana Cherison had made with the British. In preparation for Braddock's entry into the American colonies, British officer John St. Clair was promoted to Major General and commissioned as Deputy Quartermaster General of British Forces in North America. His orders were to lay the logistical foundation for Braddock's march through Virginia. St. Clair had a very long and distinguished career in the British Army. Having fought in the Austrian War of Secession, he knew just what Braddock would need in order to complete his expedition on the Virginia frontier. When St. Clair landed in the colonies, he was shocked to find that the Americans really had no geographical knowledge of the frontier and that most of the royal governors relied on maps drawn by French or native sources. Within two months of his arrival, St. Clair had ridden or paddled nearly a thousand miles and had shaped the entire campaign. He would establish a general hospital in Hampton, Virginia, solicited accurate maps of the frontier and intelligence of French activities from royal governors, ordered 600,000 pounds of flour from Pennsylvania, and prompted its government to build a supply road for the army. He constructed bridges for river crossings during the march, ordered and established a storehouse for provisions and supplies, supervised the construction and improvement of roads through Virginia to Wills Creek, reviewed Virginia provincial troops and regulars of the independent companies. He weeded out soldiers who were unfit for service, established a plan for quartering troops in the Virginia Tidewater, and took stock of the political lay of the land with colonial governments and Indian nations. St. Clair had even written a plan for settling the Ohio Valley with Croatian irregulars whom he had served with in previous conflicts during his career. Even despite all that St. Clair had been able to accomplish within a few weeks, he wrote that he had found the colonists mostly uncooperative and, quote, totally ignorant of military affairs. He also wrote that it would, quote, have been much easier to carry on war from an enemy's country than in his majesty's old dominion, meaning the American colony. He found the colonial regiments completely unfit for service. Their equipment, guns, and muskets were either too old or the soldiers themselves were too old. Are we starting to kind of see how the resentment and animosity is forming between the English British regulars and the colonists. I hope I've laid that out pretty clearly for you in this podcast thus far. 
Now, in January of 1755, Major General Edward Braddock sailed from Cork Harbor in Ireland and arrived in Williamsburg, Virginia in February of that year. He would shortly meet with General St. Clair in preparation for one of the greatest expeditions in North America. I hope you guys enjoyed that episode. Next episode, we are going to talk about Braddock's Road, a enormous feat of engineering by 18th century standards, for sure. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the man himself, who was Major General Edward Braddock. We also will see a few more cast of characters that you may be familiar with. As always, thank you guys so much for watching or listening, and please give this video a thumbs up, subscribe if you are not subscribed, ring that bell so that you are notified every time an episode is posted, and I will see you guys next episode as we continue down this road to revolution. Bye.